Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a new believer in my early 20s, like many new Christians, I had an insatiable desire to read God's word as much as I could. Most of it I'd never read before, and the bits that I had read seemed so much more meaningful and important. So what I would do is that I would have a Bible with me most places I went, and I'd pull it out when I had a spare moment and have a read. And this was back in the late 70s, a time when it seemed when the Christian world was neatly divided into two camps. You were either charismatic Pentecostal or you were not. Well, one day I'm sitting on a bus next to what seemed like a middle-aged woman. She's probably in her 30s. Anyway, I, I pull out my Bible and I start having a read. And this lady can see what I'm reading and she asks me if I'm a Christian. Well, I was more than pleased to tell her that I was and to tell her how pleased I was to meet a fellow believer. At this stage in my Christian life, I had no idea what it meant to be charismatic or otherwise. All I knew was that I trusted Jesus as Lord and Saviour and that he changed my life. Well, we hadn't got too far into the conversation when she asked me, are you filled with the Spirit? I wasn't real sure what that meant. And I thought that she was asking me, am I faithful to God and obedient to his Holy Spirit? So I told her that sometimes I was and sometimes I wasn't. But despite my failures, I did my best to trust God, confident that he'd forgive me and restore me when I failed. Well, this was not what she meant at all. She then asked me, are you baptised in the Spirit? Well, I certainly had no idea what that meant, so I asked her to explain. I didn't really understand her explanation. And when she asked me, do you speak in tongues, I was really confused then. Because apart from a bit of pidgin English I learnt in Papua New Guinea, and a rudimentary command of the Queen's English, that was the full extent of my repertoire. I clearly didn't speak in any other tongue. Well, from then on, the conversation went downhill. She told me that if I was a Christian at all, I certainly hadn't reached a level of spirituality and holiness that would empower me to live a victorious Christian life. I must say the whole experience was rather deflating. When I made inquiries with other Christians, I found that some in the charismatic camp believed that speaking in tongues was a sure sign of spiritual maturity. And those in the opposite camp were just as convinced that speaking in tongues was a sure sign of demonic possession. There seemed to be no neutral ground. Now I'm pleased to report, as you know, that both camps have settled down. The Charismatics and Pentecostals no longer insist that speaking in tongues is necessary for all Christians. And mainline Protestants don't automatically assume that all Pentecostals are demon-possessed. And though the issue in our day has settled down, when Paul was dealing with the church in Corinth, that was only one of the many controversies that he was faced with. 
At the same time, that some in the church were claiming superiority based on the nature of whatever spiritual gifts that they had. And the extraordinary thing about it is that they failed to see that what they had were not developed talents, but spiritual gifts. That is, gifts from God. And because they were gifts, well, they had no reason to boast about them. And if we're gifted at something, it's because God's made us that way. Got nothing to do with any personal superiority or spirituality. If you want to know who the truly spiritual are, Paul makes it clear that it's not those with any particular gift other than the Holy Spirit himself. And the test of whether or not you have the Holy Spirit is your willingness to honestly confess Jesus as Lord or not. Now you, all of you have already confessed that in the first song that we sang this morning. As Paul says in verse 3, he says, No one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, people do not typically curse Jesus, unless they're arrogant atheists or militant Islamists. But just as rare in our country and our culture is the willingness of people, even many who call themselves Christians, to claim Jesus as Lord. You should try it sometime. Ask people if they're Christians and you might get a nod. You may even get mild indignation from those who think that being Christian and being white Anglo-Saxon mean the same thing. But ask them if Jesus is the Lord of their life and they're likely to think that you're weird. They'll give you a funny look and then some reason why they need to be somewhere else in a hurry. Talk like that is thought to be over the top. It's the language of dangerous religious extremism. And no self-respecting Anglican ever wants to be thought of as an extremist in anything. Now the gifts that God gives to his people are very diverse. And if you add up all the gifts that are mentioned here and elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll find that there's about 20 of them. We shouldn't suppose, however, that this is an exhaustive list. God's gifts are abundant, and I'm sure that there are many hundreds that he gives to his church. What's important about the gifts is two things. Firstly, we need to understand that every gift from God is equally valuable. And secondly, we need to understand that the purpose of every gift is not for personal edification, but for the good of the whole church. From verses 8 to 10 and 27 to 28, Paul lists some of the gifts that were evident in the Corinthian church. And many of the gifts that he lists are up front and they're highly visible. Doing miracles, speaking in tongues, prophesying, all of these are fairly impressive. They're certainly far more impressive than the gifts of administration and helping others. Those are the sort of gifts that can be almost totally invisible and entirely unimpressive. 
unless, of course, you try to do them yourself. Paul's point is that there's no single gift more valuable in the church than any other. And from verse 12, he uses the body to make the analogy. Now, some parts of our bodies are more upfront and impressive than others. Nevertheless, there is no part of our body that we can be fully functional without. Each part of us serves a purpose. And it's usually only when one particular part of our body isn't working that we appreciate how vitally important it is. If you hurt your little finger, for example, and very soon you begin to think that there's hardly anything you do that doesn't require your little finger to be working properly. And the same is true in the church. There is no member of our church whom God has not gifted in some way. And there's no member of our church whose contribution to the church is unimportant. Now, you might think that the minister in the church is especially important and that somehow ordination has made him to be especially holy. But I have to tell you, it's simply not true. That ministers are just ordinary people, though called to a task that's far from ordinary. And that's what God does. He calls the foolish to shame the wise. He calls the weak to shame the strong. And the lowly to nullify the things that are. And his purpose in doing so is so that no one will boast before him. So don't imagine for a moment that ministers are as important as their ministry. It's simply not so. Ministers are merely servants of God in the household of God. And if we un misunderstand that, and we value a minister because his gifts are up front, then we're just as likely to undervalue any other ministry that's less overt. As if being an encourager, a teacher, a cleaner, a mower of lawns, a counter, a welcomer, a supplier of morning tea or a prayer is somehow unimportant. It's just not true. To serve in such ministries may seem unimpressive, even to those involved, but it's never menial and it's never unimportant. As Paul says from verse 4, there's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And if a church is going to function as God intends, then everybody needs to be exercising the gift or gifts that God has given them. And this brings me to my second point about spiritual gifts. As Paul says in verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Whatever gift you may have, its purpose is to bless others. And that's what happens in church, in community. You can't be a lone ranger Christian and suppose that somehow your gifts are a blessing to God's people. To serve and love another is not telepathic. If someone is not a regular member of any particular church, 
then it's hard to understand what they mean when they claim to be a Christian. The New Testament doesn't recognise any category of Christian who claims to be independent, freelance and unattached. We can't choose to love Jesus, but not those whom he claims as his own. It's a package deal. Christ calls us to love one another as he has first loved us. And as the Apostle John says, as we love our brother or sister in Christ, then we shall live in the light and not stumble. Now, of course, the whole concept of living under the Lordship of Christ and therefore being a regular and vital part of a worshipping community, well, it flies in the face of our Western culture. More than anything else, our culture values independence and individualism and autonomy. Sure, we want community, but often only to the extent that it serves us and meets our needs. And even when we do choose to belong to a local church, we often hang on to cultural ties more tenaciously than any commitment to spiritual unity. I've seen it in small rural parishes, where people are more wedded to a geographical unity than they are to any spiritual unity in the gospel. Fellow believers from another parish or church, or even from another congregation within our own church, could easily be regarded as strangers rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. But we can't afford to be like that. As Paul says in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And being a part of the body of Christ or the church doesn't simply mean that we turn up most Sundays. It means that we're part of a community, a community that works hard at building relationships, relationships whereby we can bless and be blessed by each other. And the quality of our relationships should be such that verse 25 and verse 26 would be a good description of who we are as a church. That is, we're a body of believers without division. We're a church where all have equal concern for each other. If one member suffers, then together we suffer. If one member is honoured, then together we rejoice. Now I realise that the larger the congregation, the more difficult that can be. And the fact that we have three congregations makes it even harder. Nevertheless, if we're to operate as a church exercising our gifts in community, then we must meet often enough to make our relationships genuine and trusting. For this reason, Christians practice hospitality, not simply as an act of kindness or a means of being sociable, but more pur purposefully as a context for being community or family when we're not gathered together on Sunday. For the gifts that God gives to his church, his people, well, they're not Sunday gifts, they're everyday gifts. Sundays are good for hearing God's word read and expounded, for confessing our sins corporately to God, for lifting our voices as one in worship, for expressing our unity in Christ with one another as we share the Lord's Supper, and maybe even for catching up briefly over a cup of tea 
with those whom we call our friends. But if you're suffering pain or grief or sorrow, then what you really need is a friend. You need a counsellor, you need an encourager. You need someone to pray with. An interesting sermon and a cup of tea on Sunday is no substitute for that. And if you have reason to rejoice, then what seems most appropriate is that you kill the fatted calf, that you turn water into wine, you go into the streets and the alleys and invite all and sundry to come and rejoice with you. Some nice hymns and a biscuit doesn't seem quite the same. But none of that is likely to happen in an hour and a half on Sunday. It requires time and it requires a community that delights both to give and receive. If we try to live our Christian lives with tenacious individualism, thinking that true freedom exists only within our personal autonomy, then we will wither on the vine and eventually be cut off. If we're good at rugged individualism, then we'll wither because it makes us proud. And if we're not good at it, we'll wither because of isolation and loneliness. Relationships are vital and they take time. So it's important that we persevere despite our differences. God has made sure that we are not the same. So that when we serve one another in the context of church and Christian community, we will contribute in different ways. We're not all apostles or prophets or teachers. We don't all work miracles or have gifts of healing or speak in tongues or interpret. But every one of us has been baptised by one spirit so as to form one body and every one of us are given to drink the one spirit. So let's rejoice in our differences and enjoy each other's gifts. And if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, don't spend a lot of time wondering about it. Simply do what you do best as you seek to serve and to bless. And as you do, God's church will grow stronger because it functions as God intended. And as you do, you too will be blessed. For as we give, so too God gives. Not in the same measure, but in a greater measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over, poured into our laps. So whatever gift you have, be assured that when you use it to glorify God and to serve in his church, then God's kingdom shall come and his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. For his is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, that when our Lord Jesus Christ ascended in victory, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to his people, the church. Thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your Holy Spirit, who unites us with you, empowers us to do your will, and seals us as yours until the day of our redemption. Help us, Lord, to use your gifts humbly, knowing that they reflect your grace and not our glory. 
prepare us for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.